Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm a nutrition and exercise physiology professor and an amateur bodybuilder. Rob Fortis Fortney, journalist, former editor at Muscle Mag International, former competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter. And we have a and guest. We have a guest host today, somebody who's familiar to most of you. Yes, thanks for having me on. This is uh, John Mike. I'm a doctorate candidate in exercise phys creator of the strengthexchange.com performance coach and strongman competitor. So. Yeah, and a dude who just pressed over his head 300 pounds. 300. Yeah. 300 it's bones. The, 315 is next. Ooh, yeah. Nice. For right now, we got to get John a shirt that, you know, from, from the 300 film or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was watching that the other day and it's just crazy. <laughs> Inside joke. Yeah. 300 film. Yeah. Speaking of films, hey, you guys, uh, you guys saw the the new uh, Stallone et al. film, didn't you? Yeah, Expendables too, man. I brought it up, and uh, John said that he had seen it too. So, Iron Radio review. Yeah, you were saying, John, that you liked it. I uh, didn't think the plot was too uh, too good, but you thought. It yeah, was I mean, I liked it. I mean, I didn't think. I thought the plot itself, the storyline, was just okay. But you know, it was really awesome to see. A lot of those guys in the same films that, you know, we consider sort of like strength heroes that kind of foster the epitome of just like overall physicality um, in the same type of movie. And you know, guys yeah. like Dolph Lundgren and Van Damme that are in their early 50s and, you know, Sly and Arnold that are like 65. It kind of speaks volumes on the fact that, you know, they're in their specific age group, but they're they're like, hey, you know, like we can still do this. You know, we're not sort of dead Beth Ridden. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is, Dolph Lundgren, who I'm a big fan of, um, wow, he's, he, I don't know, I don't know if he's aging too well. I mean, he's, I don't know. For, Just looks rough? Yeah, he looks rough. And thankfully, he played, the character he plays in the movie is kind of like, you know, this kind of genius slash psychotic guy that looks like he always has tussled bedhead hair, so, um, and he played, I mean, Maybe he's just a fine actor, and he's able to uh, channel that really well. Yeah. A couple other things. I don't know if it's just because we've seen Stallone kind of aging more, you know, intermittently, because he's been releasing movies the last decade, and Arnold hasn't. But I was actually really shocked at how old Arnold looks. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing, and I think I think a lot of it really has to do with you know his his governorship. I mean, that's that that has to age you like. Five years, like you hear people say that about uh, politicians. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, just yeah. I, I could tell the same thing, Rob. But um, I mean, I think he's still in good shape. I mean, Bruce Willis is, you know, still awesome. But yeah, and I, I, I think the previews showed another Arnold film that's coming out, and yes. another, and yes. another Stallone film that's coming out, and I, um, Sly and Arnold are currently filming another movie together that'll be out sometime next year. Wow. It was it was the uh, tra- was the uh, next Arnold movie. What was it called? Last Last, last Stand. Last Stand. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. I don't know, he's starting to look a little bit decrepit to me. And I'm not I'm not trashing on the oak, but um I don't know. Now certainly have to you know, I don't know, is he older than uh, he's sixty five, he's the same age as Sly, I believe. Oh so Sly's a little bit older then actually. I think he's or, years older. Yeah, like a year or so. Yeah. Wow, sixty five. Those guys are pushing seventy. Yeah, but you know, um yeah. you know, without without causing any problems here, I think every well, I mean it's it's not like people don't know this. You know, Sly definitely, you know, likes his vitamin G. Um, yeah, and he's made. Well, he he ranted crazily about that, bringing it back from Australia or something. Yeah, so, a few and years he makes ago. he makes no no, no um, bones about it really, and you can kind of see that in his physique. I mean, it's uh, if he was an average man, he'd be in prison, frankly. Right. But for whatever reason, because <laughs> yeah. he's he's so famous, I, I don't know. They must give him a slap on the wrist, even though his suitcases are full of full of GH. But do you think when also, he comes back from Australia? Do you think also a, a, somewhat a, of it is you know, although that's that, that's the case. Um, between those two guys, Arnold was the, obviously the more heavy, heavy user of, of you know, supplements, mm-hmm. um, you know, back in his prime. I mean, and I think I think that's part of it. To be honest with that, that's just a you know a theory of mine. But you know, it it, it tends to, in my opinion, kind of like just speed everything up to the point where you know eventually Mother Nature kind of kicks you back and says, okay. I think there's a general premise. I agree that the more you live, the faster you will die. In a way. And, I mean, Sly, who kind of came and went over his career, I mean, some of those later Rocky films, he was not exactly bristling with muscularity. Uh, Whereas, I I think The Oak, you know, he competed for so long, and then he stayed big for movies like Commando and all that other stuff that, you know, he basically went on and stayed on. And I'm not sure... Even when he was, like, even some of the movies, like, in the late 80s, like Running Man and, like, Red Heat, I mean, he was, like... He was like at forty or his early forties, and he was still like in awesome shape. Yeah, yeah. So good film though. You got yeah, yeah, well, as far as the plot's concerned, I don't think anybody particularly even goes to see it for a plot. Any any <laughs> plot that right. gets them firing guns, I think, is pretty much. Well, uh, well, I will say this. I mean, do you guys remember when you know that the the most recent Rambo came out, and the last like ten minutes kind of caused a stir because everybody was like, "Oh my god, it's just a." new level of bloodshed and body count, you know what I mean, yeah. kind of a thing. <laughs> well, this movie, for people who haven't seen it yet, is like that last 10 minutes of that movie spread out over two hours. I mean, yeah. I have, <laughs> I have, you know, in the right. 80s, and John, you might be too, you're probably too young for this, but they used to always talk about body counts. In yeah, no, I remember like, in you the, know, like the, you know, it, it was almost like a running thing where some people surmised that um, they actually had, Arnold and Sly had a, kind of thing going on where they tried to beat each other as far as the body counts in their action movies and I can tell you right now flat out that I have never seen so many people getting wasted I mean <laughs> I mean you know they used to say oh you know 50 people got shot in this Sly movie and 37 in this movie and they I mean there are literally hundreds of people just getting their heads blown off in this movie I mean it's it's something another yeah. thing that kind of shocked me what where the hell did where the hell did Jet Li go to I know he was in the he was in the beginning of the movie. Then about like fifteen minutes in, he kind of like jumped out of the plane to go back to China to take some guy that they had to catch, and then he never yeah. reappeared again. <laughs> no screen time, huh? Yeah, he he just kind of like disappeared. I I found that kind of strange. Um, Chuck Norris. Yeah, Chuck Norris, you know he he's, he's ancient. He's ancient. Like he's like seventy two now. Yeah. So, but I mean, he of course he doesn't look it, but. Um, I, He's still in pretty good shape, I, I would guess. Yeah, yeah, he's okay. And I like the fact that they kind of made fun of the whole thing about, you know, the the, the running urban, you know, kind of oh, did uh, they? You know, pop yeah. joke about, you know, Chuck Norris. They, they used the one where 
you know, so Stallone said to him, you know, I heard that you got bit by a rattlesnake or something, and, you know, and Chuck said something like, yeah, and after several days of utter agony and, you know, and, and, and pain and suffering, the snake died. <laughs> so I thought it was pretty funny. You know, I, you, you do hear that all the time, stuff like, Chuck Norris can slam revolving doors. <laughs> so what did Van Damme he was the bad what did guy. He play? What kind of yeah, guy? He was, the, he was a head evil bad guy. Oh, oh and okay. um, I honestly really think that he did a good job. You know, he he played that kind of Euro trash evil guy. You know, and he really played it well. Yeah, and he still he still's got that high flying kick, man. I mean, there's it's, yeah, that's pretty awesome. And, and when you watch it, you know it's no bull with him. You know, when he does things like that, like he's he looked good, man. Yeah, he's really good. Cool. Well, let's segue quickly before we move on. Um, it's pretty much the end of the month, so Fortress is going to pick uh, three entries on our Facebook page, Iron Radio listeners Facebook page. Um, all you have to do, and there's still a few hours to do this before Rob takes a look at it. Uh, name any three guys from the film, which we're mentioning all over the place, and then importantly, mention three wussified action heroes from the last five years. And, Basically, know, guys we, that couldn't carry the jock straps of the guys we're talking about. Right. Yeah. What we say, uh, point a finger at the twinks. So, <laughs> so that's what we're doing. And um, you'll win. We're going to pick three winners. I don't know if I mentioned that before. Um, I've got a stack of action films with real men on the cover. So I'll, I'll, leave, uh, I'll leave it to your imagination which ones I've got. Some of these are double features. So you win a cool action film. And uh, you know, resurrect the uh, burly, muscular action heroes of old. Make sure you go to uh, Phil. Set up a dedicated uh, part there on the Facebook page. Right. So put your entries in there, please. Don't start new ones because otherwise, it, it, they're going to be lost amongst everything else. So. Right on. Okay. Now, next up, um, and I apologize, everybody. I've got a, a nasty summer cold here. Too much stuff going on between, you know, getting ready for the fall semester and everything else, trying to train through it. But that sort of uh, takes us to our topic. We, we got an email, Rob did, um, about, what was it, training uh, with a new baby? Well, home? the person was responding to the topic we had last week, which was, you know, um, put for, you know, made, kind of put the catalyst that we, we did it with a, a female listener who was pregnant and was talking about, that kind of thing, and we covered that last week. I'm sure most listeners tuned in and heard that. So now this was like a follow-up, and he was saying, well, how about the other side? How about the, for the guys who are the fathers and the, the new-to-be fathers and all, you know, and in the bigger spectrum, you know, the, the stressors of life, you know, intrinsic to having a child or, or, you know, just anything else. So that kind of sparked it, so I fired that off to Lonnie, and, you know, he fired back, and we thought maybe we would talk a little bit about that, you know. It did seem relevant because, I mean... I, I think that I probably picked up this head cold because of, you know, burning the candle at both ends. A couple of 10, 12-hour days, you know, academically combined with uh, trying to lift on a regular basis, you know. And honestly, I think your immune system is one of the things, it's the first thing that uh, is a indicator. You know, you pick up a head cold or cold sores or there's lots of things involved there, but... Uh, I'll tell you what, I know it's a little early in the show, but let's go ahead and let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll go ahead and tackle this topic of the day, which is just training through life's challenges. And we've got some specific ones. Before we do that, though, I do want to bring up one piece of news just um, that our listeners might be interested in. But anyway, yeah, so we'll be back in a minute. 
Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Welcome back to Iron Radio. Um, today we're going to be talking about uh, the stressors of life and how that can uh, fluster and frustrate us of the iron and how we can some, sometimes circumvent that and keep things on the right path. But before we get to that, I, before the break, I just said that I want to mention something that I just saw. Jay Cutler, uh, the multi-time Mr. Olympia, apparently had, well, he was going on and on about how he was going to compete at this year's Mr. Olympia. Um, and apparently now he's officially said that he's not going to do it, but he's going to come back and reclaim the title next year. Anyway, interesting. I just don't know as though that's a really <laughs> honestly he's, thing. he's like three or four now. Is he three or four? He's won four or five. Okay. The problem is that he he actually did reclaim the title from from Dexter Jackson, and then of course now he's lost it to Phil Heath. Um. I don't really know. I think he's around 40 years old now, and, you know, he had that bicep injury, and things have been kind of going the way of Palumboism for that dude. Um, his, you know, I usually don't, I usually hate the term symmetry in bodybuilding because I, I don't think most people use it correctly because I don't think really people understand what that means. They mean proportion. Exactly. When people say nine times out of ten, when people say symmetry, they mean proportion. But in this case, I'll use the word symmetry because I think his symmetry has been going to hell for several years. Um, Anyway, I don't know the feasibility of this guy, you know, now taking, you know, a few years off, shrinking down, which he has a lot, having the surgery, this, that, and everything else. He's, you know, pushing 40 if he's not 40, that he's going to be able to ramp this back up another year from now. I'm curious as to whether guys like that, you know, you're talking about Palumboism, if they can atrophy their guts. I mean, what if the organ growth from the combined, you know, GH and IGF-1 and large amounts of T or whatever, what if that stays? You know, what if your muscles shrink but the organ growth stays? That'd be especially disturbing. Well, yeah, you know what? Yeah, yeah. well to kind of directly proportion to what you're saying there, I think that's kind of, in my opinion, what we've been seeing. I mean, he was never known as being a wasp-wasted guy. But, you know, and thankfully, he's actually very wide, actually, which is good for him in light of that whole situation, but it just seems like everything's kind of, you know, rolling over on itself as far as his physique is concerned, and I 
I just don't know at this point, you know, without getting in too specific, but as you guys know, when you get to a certain age and when these guys have, you know, already, you know, done so much for so long, you know, like his body, the response of his body to this stuff and that, I, I just don't know as though... But then, you know, some some people are making on, on message boards are making the, the point that maybe he's just trying to, you know, say that to keep things going along with his, you know different business ventures within the... It may be. I know there was a, like almost like the Sarah Palin thing, where for years she threatened to run for president, you know, and people saying she's really running for billionaire, because as long as she keeps threatening to run, she stays in the limelight. You know? Right, yeah. So yeah. anyway, that's that's my take on the whole thing. I, I don't know. I will say this, though, Rob. I think we've almost been a little bit too harsh when we're talking about uh, guys who use over the last couple of weeks or months. I, I think age... Thickens your waist by itself. Oh yeah. Oh, there's no question. You I know. mean, there's just. And I don't mean fat. I mean, you know, guys that are 40, they usually don't have that super tight little wasp waist like when they were 22. I'm just saying. No, there's absolutely. I'm not trash on Jay for any of this. I, you know, I, I, I mean, he's far from my favorite, Mr. Olympia. Well, like you said, he never had that little tiny wasp waist. Anyway. Yeah. So yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I have nothing. Guys like Ronnie, yeah, even guys like Ronnie Cohen, I mean, he's just so huge, but his waist looks like so tiny. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, even to this day, most people say that, you know, they think from an aesthetic standpoint, you know, his first initial win in 98 was probably his best shape. I mean, certainly it was far from his largest. I mean, God, I mean, he got up to, I think, a few pounds shy, 300 pounds on stage in, I think, 2004 or something. But, I mean, arguably that was, you know, I mean, yeah, the freak factor was, you know, amplified a thousand percent. But, you know, arguably he was not, you know, nearly as, you know... um, Adonis-like, as far as like an aesthetic appeal kind of a thing. So, but yeah, I mean, having said that, though, Rob, you know, when I was talking about not being, you know, too uh, derogatory uh, about guys who use necessarily, um, and everybody knows if if you're a new listener, we don't make judgment calls on that. People make different training choices themselves, and we we've covered that in other episodes. But I will say this: when I hear somebody like Jay Cutler say, "I'm going to compete," oh no, no, I'm not. It's going to be next year. It makes me wonder, especially since we already brought up Ronnie Coleman and his transformation right. in earlier years, whether or not it's these guys decide to compete depending on their access. I mean, maybe they have unlimited access because of the level they're at, but it almost seems like you know when the good stuff comes around, then they compete. Yeah. I wonder. It just makes me wonder. Well, you yeah, know, for sure. So yeah. So anyway, but we'll 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 see what's going on with that and. Uh... You know, I, it, the problem I think right now with the bodybuilding thing is like there's so many names in there that are kind of not, you know, spoken about in the same reverence as guys like you know, Lavroni and all those Ray and all those types of guys, Yates. Um, so I don't know. No, it's true. It's going to be, and I don't. I think. I well, sometimes I think that maybe it has something to do with the cookie cutter look that you don't see individual physiques. I mean, think about the eighties yeah. or, you know, throughout them or even the early nineties, you had a variance in physiques. You had guys like Gaspari look different from like Lee uh, Haney. I mean, well, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, or even before that Zane looked radically different from Platt, which is different from Arnold, which is different from Mentzer, you know, and, uh, now everybody is so massive because they're all over over 250 in shape that the mass is just piled on to such an extent. I think they all sort of look the same. Yeah, they look alike. No, it's true. And, you know, uh, and we say this all the time. Sometimes you have to be careful with you when you're saying things like that because you might sound like the old guy. It's not as good as one in my day. But it's true. And some of that obviously comes into play, and I think none of, none of us would, would deny that. But, you know, really, truthfully, when you step back, and I do step back and I look at it, and I, 
try and be unbiased like that. It, what, what you're saying is actually very true. It really is. It's it's become. I think it's because in a lot of ways technology has yeah. reached reached sort of a, um, a critical point in that it's sort of ruined the sport. I mean, it makes me sad in a way that the quest for size is over. Because in the 70s and 80s, there was always that quest for size. And you still see that amongst intermediate-level competitors, even national-level. Um, but once you get to upper echelons of national-level and, and pro, um, the quest for size is over, meaning if you have access to the right things and the right guru, you know, who often sells himself as a, as a dieting expert when really it's a drug coach, right. um, you really get – you get to the point where you can be as big as you want. You could literally get so big that you're, you're just a quivering mass. And, you know, I've said that before, but it loses some of that uh, heroism when, you know, you could barely squeeze down a shot without cramping up and having three normal-sized guys carry you off the stage, you know. Yeah. So I, I think that quest for size is sort of over. You can be as big as you want depending, you know, if you're willing to be uh, radical. With, I also uh, think that it has something to do with the, the just the gene pool that's being drawn from. I mean, it was such a cult thing, underground thing back then. And you, I mean, take Platts, one of my all-time heroes. I mean, let's be realistic. Structurally, the guy really didn't have it going on. And again, I'm talking about one of my heroes here, so I'm not being biased. He looked fantastic, but as far as the Greek ideal, no way. I mean, you know, he he always suffered in many structural uh, ways that had nothing to do with actually his, you know, the what, the muscle he had put on in various parts of his body, um, you know, and but you could say that for a lot of guys because there were so few few guys back then who were actually willing to take it to that level that you, the ones that you did have were usually not structurally supreme, but oftentimes they were as well, you know, but sometimes they weren't. Like a Lee Haney was, you know, had just had a god given phys- you know frame. A uh, guy like you know Rich Gaspari didn't. I think there's something to be said for that for sure. I mean, you can see that in other sports too, from running to Olympic Games. You know, the bigger the population that you draw from, the more radical you can get. But I was looking at a picture of some 80s bodybuilders, uh, some old pictures in, in Pep Wall's gym there at Bodybuilders in, in Akron. And, uh, they had a different look. Uh, the way, even the drawings from that era and just everything about them, like the, um, the moderate to heavy anabolic steroid plus thyroid to get ready for a show, that kind of look does not produce the same look as GH plus clenbuterol kind of look, you know, which is grainy and like almost yeah, you're cellophane-like skin. Yeah, you're hard looking. Uh, yeah, like literally, and you know, Gaspari was probably the one to popularize the ripped glutes and that sort of thing, but... You know, again, technology just, uh, it's like escalation, you know, in, uh, in war. Uh, there's an escalation of armaments until you get to such a point that you're blowing up the world. And I think that's kind of what where bodybuilding has landed. It's we're at the nuclear phase <laughs> where you can blow up the world. You can be as big as you, as you want or as ripped as you want with the, with the right recklessness or, uh, you know, uh, willingness maybe. So yeah. anyway. Okay, let's get to the topic. Uh, the topic today is training through life's challenges. We've touched on some aspects of this before, but again, this was really ignited by a recent email uh, about having a new baby around. And I've actually seen this on message boards in different settings, even unrelated to fitness, about people talking about, oh, I got to, you know, give give this up for a while, guys, got the new baby, you know, and that sort of thing. And if you think about all the things that can happen, um, it's not surprising, right? I mean, Sleep disturbances, I mean, with a baby, forget it, you know, I mean, um, 
but your schedule, uh, even myself recently, just, you know, I've been putting so much uh, time into sort of the academic side of things. Uh, you know, I'm still trying to lift uh, two to three times a week, but sometimes I find myself doing like a whole body, you know, like almost like a power circuit, if you will, not a regular circuit. I'm not, I don't play that, but you know what I mean? Like deadlift and then go to right to the bench and then, you know, squat or circle around just doing what I can. But anyway, um, there's a, a couple of little educational tidbits I'm going to offer to kind of ignite the conversation. Um, one is something I just saw a tweet from Discovery Health. Strength and Muscle Sport News. And they're reputable, but um, a little bland. Sometimes, you know, you get stuff from the Discovery Channel or some of these bigger networks. They're not exactly going to be, you know, on the bleeding edge all the time, although you can certainly learn a lot. And here's a little thing called um, constantly tired by 4 p.m. Here's six things you're doing wrong. Uh, and I thought this was interesting because this is applicable whether you're trying to lift after work. And we've actually done an episode on training time of day several months ago. I would go check that out, everybody. We were reading some research on that, too. But here's a couple of obvious things. Number one, uh, count your hours. This is something that I didn't really appreciate fully until I got that Zio sleep manager uh, that a listener was good enough to, to send in. And it works with your iPhone. And I thought, oh, I'm getting eight hours sleep. I just never really gave it much thought. Uh, but like any good scientist, I should have known better and thought I need to record carefully. And I think that's what I, that's going to be sort of the ultimate conclusion about all of this life stress training thing for me is use a journal, uh, record carefully, because a lot of things you think are happening may not be because you're so distracted. I mean, almost by definition, you're distracted. So here's counting your hours. Like I said, I was laying down for about eight and a half hours. I thought it was fine. But, you know, the sleep manager said I was getting very poor amounts of REM sleep and deep sleep. Uh, I was probably averaging more like six hours a night. So if you really want to get your eight hours in, and if you're the kind of person that really needs that like me, you better lay your butt down for a good nine, nine and a half hours. I mean, we're literally talking about you know laying down at nine o'clock asleep by 10 yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So count your hours. It's funny you say that no. because I, I, I certainly have always subscribed to that whole idea that because I, I don't consider myself a very good sleeper. And I've always thought to myself, you know, if I if I want to get like you were saying, a good solid eight or nine hours, I better make sure I'm in the bed. With a lot more time to spare than that, because by the time yeah. I'm rolling around, getting up to go to the washroom, this, that, and everything else, it uh, it starts really uh, dwindling down that actual time that you're snoozing. Now, some of these, I, 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 there's no references, of course. This is for the layperson. But number two is eat dinner earlier. Mm. It says if you yeah. eat too late, it can make you tired and groggy the next day. Make sure you eat at least three hours before you go to bed at night. Eating too late basically uh, affects your sleep. Uh, it talks about some people might have vigorous dreams or not feel very rested. And, Rob, I know in the past you've said, like, if you try to slam a protein shake before bed, like you often hear, you feel slightly revved up in the background. Yeah. I mean, I uh, eat very close to my um, sleep time now. But, yeah, it's it's not like in my bodybuilding days when I had, like, you know, the same thing. But, you know, it would be a, a strict whey protein shake or something. You know, now I make sure there's, you know, carbs in there and all that kind of stuff, too. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, some, I've heard some people say that they eat dinner like you know, like five thirty, and to me that's a little early. But like the other night, for example, I was running around doing stuff, and I didn't get to eat till about nine thirty, and I was so like pissed in the sense that I didn't get to eat till that late. And I get that way too. Yeah, yeah. If, you, that, if you miss meals, yeah. because partly 
I don't know if listeners know this, but your rage center in your hypothalamus is right next to your hunger center. Oh. So when you stimulate your hunger center, I think there's almost spillover to the anger center. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, guys like you and me, because we've gone to school for this stuff, you know that you're catabolic, yep. you know, and it just starts to make you even angrier. Yeah, and oh, it turns yeah. out that I didn't sleep worth a crap, and I, and I woke up the next day, and I just looked like crap. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so anyway, there's another one. And again, these are fatigue fighting tips. This could be for somebody with a baby or anybody, you know, overworked. Uh, number three, I think this is interesting. Cut back at lunch. Said if you're eating too much for lunch, you might get sleepy, uh, especially carbs like white bread or white rice. I think a lot of our listeners know that. Um, but, uh, you know, what you eat for lunch does matter. I saw a lecture uh, a couple of years ago in uh, Phoenix, I think it was, and uh, – the guy was saying in the military, when they fly around and they have to stay sharp, they they really avoid, you know, high glycemic index carbs like the plague because it worsens jet lag and stuff. So anyway, everybody, I think to some extent or many people get that sort of siesta time, mid-afternoon sleepiness. Yeah. Uh, I think it's part of a biological rhythm. But, yeah, don't make it worse with a giant bowl of, you know, white rice and pasta or something. <laughs> um, number four, load up on healthy fats. Um Anyway, this could, could be by elevating mood. I think they're speculating a little bit here. I'm not going to go on. Stay hydrated. This is interesting. Even mild dehydration can cause the blood to thicken, and this is true. I mean, one of the reasons that even drinking water, simple water, can reduce your risk of heart disease is because it, it reduces blood viscosity. It makes your blood actually thinner. Uh, and here they're talking about it causes the heart to pump harder, and that's something that might, I think, this is just speculation, but could couple with sleep apnea, like we were talking about a few episodes ago, where, you know, you don't draw breath, whether you're like Phil and you're crushed under your own weight or whatever it is. Um, it's just a slightly adrenaline-raising event, you know, to be hypoxic. And on top of that, if you've got thick blood and your heart's pounding because of that already, and guys who use androgens, their hematocrit, their red blood cell count's going to be very high. Their blood's going to be fairly thin. Yeah, it goes up. Uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, another reason to keep, the, keep hydrated, don't put unnecessary stress on yourself. And then the last one on here is uh, watch your caffeine. Um, it, here it actually says try to remove caffeine entirely may be the best solution because you don't have to deal with the ups and downs that it creates. Yeah, I don't know if I can do that because I usually blast coffee right before I go train and Agreed. Yeah, and sometimes even like in the morning, if if I just feel like I'm just not together, I'll just after I eat and drink a bunch of water, I'll have just a little bit of of a cup of coffee just to kind of get things going. But the the bulk of it, of course, is is right before you go train. Yeah, I I think you bring up a good point though, um, Lonnie. The whole idea that with caffeine, I mean. You have to really moderate caffeine because I, I, the people that I see that suffer the greatest, for, you know, if they don't have their, you know, quote unquote, caffeine fix, the people who can't move in the morning unless they have like four cups of coffee, mm-hmm. the people that I always encounter that have those issues are the people that drink coffee um, just like a beverage several times throughout the day. You know? It's a slippery slope because I know for me when I was teaching years ago, there was one point where I was drinking like nine cups of coffee a day, and I'm n- normally not like that. But it's almost like a, a security blanket. You know, it's something warm, keeps your hands busy. Like when I lecture, I like to sip a cup of coffee. Well, if the university has me teaching umpteen classes back to back, I'm drinking a lot of coffee. Um, so, yeah, what you have to do is – like now I actually drink decaf. I mean, Starbucks has been a godsend for me because I actually like some of their dark roast decafs. 
So I can drink my coffee, or sometimes I'll have tea, or even water or green tea or something while I teach, and try to keep the caffeination for uh, the pre-workout period. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I agree with Rob too. I, I because of the aroma and the ritual thing before workout, it's better to just leave the coffee for right beforehand anyway, and try to force yourself to do something else yeah. at other times. You know? Yeah. No, I because like I'll tell you, man, I. I think that coffee is something that that could be very useful again but but if it's used by design you know rather than just something that you automatically do it's morning it's the afternoon go get a coffee let's get another coffee let's right you got to schedule it you know like think of coffee as something that's a tool and you know um that might not be very easy to do for just average people there who have no kind of you know foot in the athletic world or strength training world. But for guys like us, and for, certainly for our listenership, you totally under can comprehend what I mean when I say tool. You know, use it as a tool. Um, you know, and apply it. You know, consciously with you know towards things and not just like randomly shotgun coffee just because. Let's just have coffee. You know, like if it's. Because, yeah, it, it, it otherwise it does become, I think it becomes problematic because I've seen people like this, you know, that are just. Well, it affects your daily, it affects your diurnal rhythm. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it raises cortisol. I mean, it, it, it stimulates your adrenal glands, and cortisol comes from those, too. It's not just adrenaline. Well, Different just parts I mean, of blood it. pressure, the catecholamine response that you get it. I mean, it's everything. Yeah, you don't want to be jacked with, you know, high, higher adrenaline all the time because most of the time, let's face it, you're trying to eat and recover. Only for the hour and a half in the gym are you destroying you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually gave a, a client of mine not too long ago that he was, um, we were actually both coming back together from a, a training session that I had him going through, and he, his whole thing was always, you know, drinking coffee, going to get coffee after we trained, and my whole thing, when I, and I said to him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not telling him what to do or, you know, how, how you should, you know, structure your coffee in, intake habits, but I said, you know. Not helpful. I, I, I said yeah. that. I said, you know, like in, in the days, the two or three days or whatever between your sessions, I said, you know, that you're trying to recuperate. And I don't really think trying to like, you know, supercharge your engine while your body should be actually trying to like, you know, just recuperate is really helpful because it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Well, I will say this. If you want to do damage control, if people out there are getting used to – uh trying half-calf or decaf or whatever. Um, fish oils, we talked about the other day. Uh, seven grams a day of fish oils actually reduce the cortisol response to stress. So if you're a high-testosterone guy and, you know, you're jamming the stimulants all the time, both supplements and coffee, you got to be careful. So actually, that's one of the things that fish oils do. So if you don't Take fish oils. I know there's a little bit of nutrigenetics there. People respond differently. Maybe I'll get into that in a future episode. But the point is, for most people, they're beneficial, and there's good studies in men that they reduce the cortisol response to stress. So fish oils wow. can help buffer. Oh yeah, absolutely. Some of, I that, take some, some of that raging stress. I probably know. take about twelve a day, like four after breakfast, uh, maybe a few after lunch, and then you know three or four after training, and another three or right. four before you go to sleep. <laughs> Oh, you know what? I want to touch on one other thing, too. There's a lot of talk in bodybuilding circles, I think often with uh, women fitness competitors, but I think with men, too, that after they compete, they, they tend to get fat. and Or even deep into their diet, they're not changing much. They're just getting strung out. Well, there's a lot of talk that you hear among non-professional uh, uh, people. I don't want to sound, you know, elitist, but uh, – and they'll talk about adrenal fatigue a lot. Oh, I know. And if you go, 
And if you go look at this stuff, you know, if you actually try to look this up, I mean, it's, what do you mean? Do you mean Cushing, uh, not Cushing syndrome, but Addison's disease? You know, what, because if you actually look this up, most legitimate endocrinologists are not going to give this a lot of credence. What's, in other words, it's almost like your adrenal glands are totally exhausted. Probably what's happening is that you've supersaturated your body with adrenaline and your beta receptors, your beta adrenaline receptors are dropping. Yep. You have less response to that hormone. So your tissues aren't responding very well. well I'm not going to deny that kind of, there's a time where you're strung out, right? But the whole concept of adrenal fatigue is almost one of these overblown bodybuilding things. You know what I mean? Yeah, but that's one thing about like the overtraining syndrome that I've heard people talk about is just one of several characteristics is just an overactive adrenal gland. And, and I'm just like, yeah, that's great. But that can be from so many other factors and not just something with, you know, overtraining or, or under recovery or whatever. Yeah, well, there's little doubt if you look at work by Andy Fry and those guys, the sympathetic type of overtraining is not being able to get that background level of, you know, epi or norepi down uh, to a relaxing level. And that's very opposite from endurance type of overtraining. Uh, but having said that, like I said, I just hear that a lot, especially from people who are hard dieting, uh, a lot with the the gurus that work with women and stuff like that. And like I said, you're not going to see that kind of stuff um, very much in a textbook, at least not to the level that you see it uh, hyped, you know, in bodybuilding circles. It's almost like that bro science just kind of takes over, that pseudoscience. And uh, <laughs> anyway, so uh, I'm not saying that people don't get strung out. They get glycogen depleted. They get a reduction in adrenaline receptor number and that kind of thing. But um, this notion of adrenal fatigue I think is a little bit more iffy than a lot of people realize. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay, but John, you mentioned um, overtraining, basically. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was uh, to sort of give everybody a little bit of educational tidbit for the show is I pulled up a paper that I thought was interesting. It's um, It addresses overtraining and what happens. Now, this is something that I did my dissertation on. I'm very interested in this. I've given lots of tidbits about researchers like Kelman and Kenta or Andy Fry. Yeah. Um people like that, but um, this was actually about life stress. So if you go on the National Library of Medicine on PubMed and you actually type in overtraining and life stress, this is a study that looked at life stress and uh, how it affects overtraining. And what I thought was interesting about this was was thus. Um, many guys years ago overdid their fear over overtraining. You saw a lot of armchair lifters, you know, who love to speculate and there was this massive fear of overlift, overtraining or even overreaching on purpose. Uh, and on the flip side of that, there were people who really did drive themselves in overtraining. I mean, I was one of them. I can promise you overtraining syndrome is real. Um, but the point being here is what they did was they looked at life stress, these researchers, and they, uh, they actually looked at the prevalence uh, with a questionnaire of people who just train in fitness centers. Yeah. So I thought, oh, this is juicy, because not only will this point to certain life stress, like we're talking about, right, babies, job, move, girlfriend or boyfriend problems, um, but also the prevalence, you know, so are people really falling apart? Well, John, I know that you know what I'm about to say is it's really hard to measure. What are you going to measure, right, biologically? Yeah. Uh, blood work is not going to show you a lot, usually. Yeah. Um, there's no gold standard marker for overtraining, but so this study is by Akel de Elia and colleagues. Uh, it's a Brazilian study. It's a 2010 paper, and it says absence of the predisposing factors and signs and symptoms usually associated with overreaching and overtraining in physical fitness centers. 
So they're sort of telling you up front. They don't see a lot of overreaching, overtraining. They had over 400 people in the study. You can get the full free paper online, and they're looking at predisposing factors. They looked at blood work and things like that. And I'll, I'll just boil this down, and then you guys can comment. Um, according to the questionnaire score analysis, no predisposing factors or signs and symptoms that are usually associated with overtraining were detected among the members of physical fitness centers, at least in uh, what is it in uh, Sao Paulo City, Brazil? Uh, this observation was corroborated by the absence of any significant hematological or stress hormone levels in the blood analysis uh, of the majority of the selected volunteers. So they couldn't see anything in the blood. I will say this. If you go look at the full paper, they had slightly higher um, cortisol and slightly lower testosterone. Right. Uh, but as far as things that you might consider signs and symptoms like crushing fatigue, and, and there's just a whole host of things they didn't see him in the usual gym rat. Hmm. So, I don't know. Anyway, um, the reason that I was interested in this was because there is good research out there that life stress could actually lower your overtraining threshold. And that's something I think we need to be careful about. So let's say you, you train five days a week. And normally you can handle that. You're sleeping nine hours a night. You're eating you know, um, like clockwork. But then baby comes around. You know, or uh, somebody in your family has a health problem or you split up with your significant other. Now, all of a sudden, there's a huge amount of psychological stress uh, and that affects your nervous system and your cortisol levels, as you might guess. You know, the whole, you know, neuroendocrine axis there Um, and what you used to be able to get away with. Now you can't. So one of the things I would suggest you guys tell me what you think is a you might want to give serious thought to a very high-level goal if you know you're in the middle of a cross-country move or you're splitting up with your girlfriend or whatever. Now, some people can use this to actually fuel their passion, uh, but other times it, it can you know, uh, take away too much. You can't get your head in it. Um, so I, might, I would suggest something like keep those logs, write down, make sure you're eating enough like we were talking a few weeks ago. Uh, you might want to pull back and train three days a week for a while. Yeah. Give yourself a chance to adjust. What do you guys think? Yeah, I would agree. I think you definitely need to keep measuring, you know, whether it's quality of sleep or I, I've noticed during the times of um, life stress, um, you know, when it kind of dumps on you from a whole place of whole variety of places, um, I think you need to check your eating quality too because sometimes like when you're real super stressed and you got so much going on it's almost as if like you either forget to eat or just don't have some type of appetite and then of course that's going to negatively impact your training too so i would definitely record it and, and keep that in check and then if you can still train your regular normal days whether it's four or five days a week you know i would definitely recommend to kind of lower your intensity threshold in a sense. I mean, if you're still doing your normal exercises, but, you know, you can't train at, you know, 90-plus percent or doing heavy box squatting and, and just all kinds of extra volume and intensity when you have other stress and psychological stress going on because the life stressors will certainly override uh, your ability to, you know, get strong and perform well. And it may just be a matter of a couple of weeks. I know when I moved up to Minnesota – as soon as I got established, I trained for for a competition. You know, uh, I started a year long sequence up there, but that was not during 
the physical summer, you know, the physical act of moving during the summer and all that sort of thing. So it doesn't it doesn't necessarily take a long time. You, but I just think, like you said, things mount. I think that's psychological. I think it's also physical. I mean, when you talk about babies around, I don't know if there's any research that lowers your testosterone levels, but I know being married supposedly lowers your testosterone levels. Hmm. You know, so I wonder if some of the family focus uh, or your focus away from the battle zone of the gym doesn't literally take you away from that cycle of dominance that Fortress talks about. You know, I, I want to say I always kind of come from the psychological standpoint of, on these things, and I, I'm going to again. I think the biggest thing that certainly people who are established athletes, you know, people who have actually been doing it, like you say, with dedication and passion for any length of time, you know, years, the biggest hurdle that people like that, I can, I can, I can talk for myself for this too, when you encounter a life stress, you know, um, any of the number of the th- things that you're talking about, moves, jobs, relationships, kids, whatever, whatever they are. I think the thing that deep six, deep sixes establish athletes more than any, more than the stress is the stress they put on themselves because of the stress. Because you start freaking out about it. I mean, how many times have guys like us heard another guy in the gym say, oh, man, I, you know, I, I got a cold and I couldn't train for four days. I'm shrinking. You know, it's just... And you're, you think, I look at these people and I think, you know, you're not shrinking. You might be dehydrated or something. But the fact that you're, because str- I know what they, they're thinking, because I used to think like this too when I was 19 years old, you know. The fact that you're, every minute you're looking in the mirror and thinking, feeling your, you know, your chest and your arm. Oh my God, I'm shrinking. I'm, I'm losing strength. I'm, this is negatively impacting me so badly. I mean, that overriding just obsession with it, I think, is the, the, predominant thing that's going to deep six somebody rob that is fueled by sometimes you hear people online um you know fitness experts and gurus and whatnot they'll say you're either shrinking or you're growing you know you're (laughs) either getting fatter or leaner at all times yeah and i'm just gonna i'm gonna point this out guys listeners that is a week to week proposition not a minute to minute proposition right when you train you'll get a stimulation and protein synthetic rate for probably like 36 hours that's just from one body part you know, and you're eating. So again, it's a week to week kind of thing. And I can promise you that Fortress and I, and I bet John too, there's been times where we would take even a couple of weeks, two, three, four weeks away from the gym for whatever reason. I mean, maybe not training completely, but uh, avoiding a lift maybe. And you come back and you're stronger than you've ever been. Yeah, I I, I do deload, uh, sort of unload weeks every four weeks, regardless of what's going on in life. And it was it's ironic because not this past week, but the week before it was my off week and I only trained once or twice and like everything seemed to go on like all at one time. Like I had car issues, you know, crap was going on, you know, with jobs and all this other stuff. And um, it, it, we were talking about that the other week. It, Rob was. Yeah. Yeah. It all hits you at once. It seems. like. Yeah. And it's funny because and I think Rob really has a really good point. It's the amount of stress that you put on yourself that affects everything else. And sometimes, I mean, I'm certainly guilty of that. I know we're all guilty of that. But for me, sometimes, depending on the nature of the stress and where it's coming from, you can almost use that to fuel your training sessions. And you get so stressed out about certain things and you're like, you know, damn, like, I can't go, I can't wait to go train. Like, I got to get out of here and go train. And then it, it, yeah, it can be your, your, uh, safe, safe place, yeah. you know, uh, well, I didn't mean to cut you off. Actually, I wanted to ask you, John. So when you deload, just another tidbit for listeners, 
do you mean you take days entirely off or do you use lower percentages? Uh, Explain your deload. Uh, typically for me, I'll back off on the volume and the intensity. I, I usually do the same types of lifts. Um, sometimes I'll make you know an exercise out or two, but uh, it's definitely a reduced time in the gym, lower the volume, I'll lower the intensity. I'll train twice a week, like one you know light to moderate upper body and one light um, moderate to lower body. So for example, like two weeks ago, um, I just did some overheads, um, some back work, um, some chest, um, arms, and then for my lower body, I didn't deadlift, I didn't squat, I just did some like split lunges or some regular lunges, some mobility and stability work, um, and like, and that was it. And then you know, and then when you're talking about, especially with over, even with overtraining, you always want to get the super compensation phase going on, right? So typically, you know, you come back the first week and you just feel like awesome, uh, like a, like a superhuman. Um, so for me, like for if I train for four weeks, the first two weeks I usually blast as much as I can. The third week is more of an integrative, um, like nonlinear undulating purization type, like integrated recovery. Then I come back the fourth week um, and then, you know, blast through training. And then the week after that I take, you know, the, the extra recovery time. But um, that's that's for the most part. If I'm planning, if I'm going on a trip uh, and it just so happens to fall, you know, afterwards I may go up to five weeks, but, um, yeah, that's typically what it occurs for me. I know a lot of other people generally take the same approach. Right. I, we're just about out of time, so I just want to clarify something. Redundancy of training and the fact that a lot of people don't periodize, I think, is one of the predisposing factors to people getting burnt. Um, so, you know, whether we're talking about some of these life stresses like babies and jobs and moves uh, or not, uh, mix up. Your, your training sessions, and I really like what you said, John. I think that's a super simple rule that people could sort of take home and even try this week or consider, which is if you feel like it's been, let's say, 6 to 12 weeks, everybody's different, since you've done any kind of deloading and you've been doing the same thing over and over, this is going to be hard, but drop your big lift movement out for a week. So no bench, no squat, no pull, you know, something like that, uh, or at least for one of your body parts. Yeah. And do like like John was saying, accessory work, uh, just other movements. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to go light. You could do leg presses. You could brutalize yourself with leg presses. We were talking about that before. So uh, I think dropping out that one primary movement and just doing something else, I, you know, like John said, you could even lower the percentages and everything else. But just changing the movement like that in sort of a, a deload phase could be good. Right, and if you're a disciplined strength athlete, just having the kind of the the psychological vacation of not of knowing that you're going to the gym but you don't have to perform under squats or bench press or deadlift you know because when when you are a competitive powerlifter or somebody who you know who's really dedicated to you know strength training those movements you know they hold they hold a certain you know throne in your mind they do. as far as like you know like you know like you're saying Lonnie you can get on a leg press you know I, I can get on a leg press and like you say I can brutalize myself but the stress is not there cuz it's the leg press Right, you know, or I could. It's but as soon as you get that bar on your back, it's like I say. If you're a really dedicated strength athlete, that's hallowed ground. Okay, the bar is now on my back. I have to perform, and that'll stress you out right there because you're because then you have a a standard in your head 
of what you have to do. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm capable of doing this, and the standard, it, I, it's no good if I do anything less than this. Right. Right. But, but, like, but yeah, you go in the gym, you're like, hey, I'm doing lower body today. You know what? And I'm not squatting. All of a sudden, it, can, it kind of sounds cheesy, but it can actually kind of just be kind of like a little bit more of a Disneyland feel, too, right? Oh, you're yeah, just going around. Like and you can like, load up the leg press with 1,600 pounds, and it still doesn't have the same stress as, you know, putting the 500 pounds on a squat bar or whatever it is. Okay, guys, we are out of time. I'm just going to uh, leave everybody with something very quickly. Try to learn to be comfortable in your own skin. There are periods in your life where you're going to be doing other things or even living for other people, yeah. a baby, a wife, uh, a mom, whatever. Get comfortable in your own skin and don't keep thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to lose half an inch on my biceps. No, you're not. It's a week-to-week thing, and you'll be fine. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. We are out of time. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes Everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications, and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best this is the ultimate source in one place little disclosure here i do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book it's such a low amount however obviously i've done it for that purpose i did it because like you i want to have something i can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns if there are any on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.